Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday, May 23rd. I'm sorry, May 24th, 2016. I'm Jeff Salzman, and I am coming to you from Boulder, Colorado, as always. And I am very happy to be with you tonight. I'm joined here, as always, by our Daily Evolver producer, Brett Walker. Say hi to the folks, Brett. Hi, folks. <laughs> and uh, I want to offer a special thank you to those of you who are listening live tonight on Integral Radio. It's always so nice to feel my little tribe here on Tuesday nights. And also wonderful to have so many new listeners. We had 20,000 downloads last month, which really astonishes me. Uh, okay, actually, it was 19,908. But we're rounding up, aren't we, Brett? Indeed. Yes, we are. And we're on uh, Integral Life, of course. That's our home site. And thank you so much to the folks at Integral Life and Integral Radio for um, being our founding site, gosh, six or seven years ago, I guess now. And we're also on uh, our site, thedailyevolver.com, iTunes, Stitcher, where else, Brett? Is that it? Integral Life, Daily Evolver, iTunes, Stitcher, actually Google Play, any podcast aggregator, and yeah. uh, SoundCloud too. Yeah, cool. So thank you for listening and uh, share um, this podcast with other people that you think might be interested. It's really cool to feel people coming in and listening. All right. So, you know, just for those of you who are new to the Integral game, this is bringing an integral perspective to current events and culture and politics and spirituality is what we do here. And what's so great about it for me is that it doesn't feel like work in a way. It's my hobby. It's the thing I do even though nobody pays me. <laughs> and it's also my practice. I think that as an integral practitioner, that integral consciousness is a real thing. It's a natural growth state of human evolution that emerges out of the postmodern stage of thinking. And I myself am so grateful to have found integral theory, the integral maps, and been ushered into an integral worldview in the mid-80s when I discovered Ken Wilber's wonderful book called Up From Eaton. And um, I had always been taught that humanity had fallen down from Eden, but up from Eden sort of changed everything. And that was the beginning of my integral enlightenment, if you will. And I really do think that integral consciousness is psychoactive. Ken Wilber says that, and I think it's true. You really, when you get this view of the world, you see the world differently. It's, it's thrilling in a sense. It's like a butterfly breaking out of a chrysalis. It's a new world, a new you. And when we look from an integral perspective at human history and human development, we see that that's true at every stage of development, that every time we move into a new uh, developmental uh, structure, it feels like a new world. I remember, I sort of, as a three-year-old, when I realized I was a separate person, not just part of mommy and daddy, that I could run around under my own power. I didn't have to wait to be given things. I could take them. I could say yes and no. I was a free agent. And that's the entry into the red stage, the egocentric stage, or what we sometimes call, call the warrior stage. And then later in my childhood, I realized I'd probably age nine or 10, that I could control my ego, my impulses, and my selfishness. And I could be purified into a larger world of sanctity and beauty and safety. And I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And that was thrilling. And that was a new world and a new me. And then, alas, <laughs> I went to high school and started studying science and got all secular and realized that facts trump faith and 
that the world is knowable on its own terms, and we can experiment and use logic. And I supplemented, or actually I dropped, as many of us do, my mythic worldview for a scientific worldview. And that, too, was thrilling. It was a new world and a new me. And then I moved to Boulder, and I got all postmodern and realized that I was thinking too much and that there was yet another world and another me beyond facts and logic, a world of green subjectivity, of self-awareness, of the willingness to take positions of self-blame, of sensitivity to others, a new kind of magic, and that green postmodern um, structure was very thrilling. And then, you know, we move, or I am working on it, at least, moving into the next stage, the post-postmodern world, uh, or the integral world. And I talk about what it is to be living from an integral worldview or a world space a lot on this podcast. But if I just sort of present it in quick headline form, we can look at it as, you know, what, what's new that is emerging as we move into the integral stage of development. And that's, I know, of interest to a lot of you on this, on this call. And we can look at it in first, second, and third person. In the third person perspective, we're just able to see and accommodate more of reality. All of the competing, conflicting truth claims uh, between science and religion, East and West, pre-modern cultures, post-modern cultures, all schools of human wisdom find their place in the bigger integral view. It's a more inclusive system where we can see deeper patterns, textures of the world. As I often say, it's like hitting the plus button on the Google Maps. So that's third person. In second person, in terms of our relationship with other people, we realize that everybody is a moving object in time, that everybody has a past, everybody has a future, and that we are privileged to be with each other in the only place we can be, which is the now, and that we are subject to eros, the evolutionary urge, to the creativity of any moment, that anything can happen. And we therefore understand other people better. And I think most important, we drop the first tier project of trying to change other people and instead just try to see them as unique expressions of humanity, really, and help them be as healthy as they can be right where they're at. And then we move to the first person where we feel a shift of energy in our own minds and bodies at all chakric levels. And that shift is from a fear operating system to what? And, you know, for those of you who are integral practitioners, I would ask you, what is beyond the fear operating system? I hear words like, it's the love operating system, and that, that rings true. I hear it's the world of creativity and self-expression. And I got to say, I, I love the word that Chogum Trumpa used, uh, the, the, the founder of the Buddhist community here in, um, in Boulder and, you know, the Shambhala community and so forth. And he always used the most homely words in, in a way. And he said that what's characteristic of this stage of development is wholeheartedness. I love that. The posture of being wholehearted to engage life from a position of courage and optimism and a sense that all is well because we're being lived as, as much as we are living our lives. And um, of course, I always go to Walt Whitman if I want a little poetry around this. And well, I just think of two of his most famous poems, the title one is, I travel the open road. And the other is, I sing the body electric. 
And I love both of those. I think they're so transmissive of what it is to be in the integral stage of development. And so, you know, what we're doing here in a way is integral practice. We're, we're trying to be aware uh, of, uh, of what's going on in a deeper way, to practice it, and to see eros or evolution at work in our world. And not just in our genes, but in our hearts and minds, and in our collective hearts and minds, which is otherwise known as culture. So that's what Integral does. It helps us to realize this move towards higher individual consciousness and higher collective consciousness that is going on all around us. So I do use a bit of jargon in this podcast. So if you are interested in you know, a further study of Integral Theory, you can look at a couple maps that we have posted at dailyevolver.com. Uh, you can just scroll down the homepage and you'll see a section called About Integral Theory. Click on that and you'll see a couple maps. One is the map of the altitudes of development. The other is the quadrants of reality and they are helpful guides. I'm happy that also tonight we have a special guest and that is Theo Horesh, who is here to talk to us about the Bernie Sanders movement. And that's really the big story in American politics, is the transformation of Bernie Sanders into a warrior of the progressive agenda. He continues to draw huge crowds. He's got real fire in the belly, and he really feels like a crusader in these last few weeks, particularly. And he is bringing, uh, from an integral perspective, He's bringing the green economy online more fully into American culture. And he's challenging the establishment, the political system, particularly the Democratic Party at the stage. And, um, you know, he's triggered and is now riding a tsunami of support that I can't imagine that he thought he would have when he first started out on this quest. So it's really, really fascinating to see what's going on here. And I had a couple weeks ago, uh, one of my guests was Terry Patton, who was supporting Hillary. And tonight we have Theo Horesh, who is, among other things, a powerful, integrally informed supporter of Bernie Sanders. And I really appreciate the work he's doing, particularly with his huge presence on Facebook. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But before we do that, I want to share a couple things that caught my eye in the last week that I think really helps illustrate some of what's coming online in terms of uh, integral consciousness. And first, I want to uh, uh, look at a conversation that was had on Morning Joe a few days ago, which is a great example of pre-modern consciousness trying to talk to postmodern consciousness and not understanding each other, talking over each other. And, um, you know, this is our life. So this is an example of a interview with Mika Brzezinski uh, interviewing Donald Trump on Morning Joe. And this is a few hours after the Egypt airplane crashed into the Mediterranean. This was last week. And Donald Trump, within hours of the crash, tweeted the following, quote, Looks like yet another terrorist attack. Airplane departed from Paris. When will we get tough, smart, and vigilant? Great hate and sickness. So that's what Trump tweeted. And then several hours later, we have this interview on Morning Joe. And Brett, why don't you play that for us now? I think the worry also is just how you will be as president and present your positions and your words. And there are some concerns that you might be trigger happy with your words. Like, for example, oh, really? I'm the yes. one that didn't want to go into Iraq. Maker. I'm even talking about, for example, the tweet that you sent out yesterday morning. What's wrong um, with them? I, I, I will tell you what some might say. Go ahead. Uh, that it was very much generating hatred, uh, focusing on the hatred and fear. 
that terrorism brings no, to uh, well, the American that way, people. But I, I, and I, maybe perhaps that first tweet. I can practically guarantee who blew it up. And but listen, plane listen, went down. Donald, and listen to yourself you, right the, now. The mindset of a weak Hillary Clinton, which is four more years of Obama, is not going to do it for our country, Maker. Yeah, and I'm, I'm asking you if there is any, perhaps, uh, backing here to the concern that a, a lot of what you say is focused on hatred and fear and sort of generating more anger and, and churning it up. And perhaps, for example, that tweet, uh, maybe you might have thought of the families that no, were suffering what, first. Let me, let me tell you what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of the future. We cannot continue to let things like this happen. We are being taken advantage of by radical Islamic terrorists and we are, this world is changing. And another couple of planes go down, Minka, and you're going to have a depression worldwide, the likes of which you've never seen. Because nobody's going to travel. There will be no anything. There will be no communication between countries. And you will have a problem, the likes of which you've never seen. And I will tell you, four more years of a weak Hillary Clinton, and that's what she is, four more years of that, it will not work. It will not work. And all I did is pointed out, and I said, when you find out what happened to the plane, it will be exactly what I said. So there you go. That's postmodern talking to pre-modern. Mika Brzezinski is coming from a postmodern sensibility where words are, it's like she said, words are, he's trigger happy with his words. Words are actually harmful. They generate hatred, fear. Words are weapons at Green because Green has a lot of sensitivity. It's one of the big sort of culture wars in America. And we see this on Fox News, uh, particularly in the Fox News versus Obama arena, where he is criticized relentlessly on Fox News for not using words like Islamic terrorism. He talks about violent extremism, as does Hillary. And the idea from Obama and Hillary's perspective, and Mika's as well here, Mika Brzezinski, is that we don't want to upset people, because if we do, they'll be our enemy. Now, pre-modern thinking, it's like trash talk is actually part of the war we're fighting. We want to intimidate people with our words. We don't worry about whether they're going to like us or not. We assume they don't like us. These are our enemies. And for pre-modern people, the world is a titanic battle between good and evil. And it's not going to do you any good to try to mollify the devil. You just have to go after the devil. In fact, as Trump puts it, what Meek is talking about is the mindset of a weak Hillary Clinton. And from an integral perspective, we can see that a lot of the population really resonates with that. In fact, to, to do integral practice, proper integral practice here, we would want to listen to that excerpt as if we were afraid. And let me say that again. We would want to listen to that excerpt, particularly Trump, as if we were afraid that we were in danger. And for a lot of us, I would say vastly most of us, in the United States, we're not really afraid. I, I live here in Boulder. You know, they're really going to come here and get me in Boulder. But for people who are living in Washington, D.C., for people who are living in high rises in New York City, those are in the bullseye of where terrorists are likely to hit. And also, you know, the sort of security moms is, is, is a demographic that we talk about in politics. And these are people who are women, or, and also men, uh, who are at stages of development where they have um, just higher, more sensitive receptors for things that might go wrong. So that is a compelling argument. And, and then Mika comes back with, well, maybe you could have thought about the families who were suffering, who lost their loved ones. And his answer to that is, let me tell you what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about the future. Another couple planes go down, no travel, no communication between countries. 
depression like you've never seen. Of course, it's overblown and this is politics. But this is an example of two worldviews, two world spaces that not only think differently, but they have different truth verification systems, they have different receptors, and they come to different conclusions about virtually everything. And it's a great example of part of the culture war that is going on in our country. And of course, we end up with um, Donald Trump's last statement, where he says, when you find what happened to the plane, it will be exactly what I said. And this is so characteristic of red communication. Red warrior communication, this is where Donald Trump is really operating from. It's not about policies. It's not about plans. It's about assertion. It's about being right. It's about being the alpha figure in the room. And we have to notice that that is very, very powerful for a lot of people in the culture. And we might even, as integral practitioners, try to find that strata in our own minds and bodies that is just looking for somebody to come in and take care of things. It's, it's actually a fairly low-risk assertion for Trump. It seems like it's high-risk because, hey, what happens if it turns out that it was a mechanical error and it wasn't a terrorist attack? You know, he's got egg on his face. But that doesn't really matter at Red. You just move on to the next thing. It's like a shark. Uh, I, I think back on the birther thing, you know, uh, back in what it, whatever it was, 2013, um, uh, 14, uh, when Donald Trump was running with this Obama isn't a, an American citizen thing. That was his thing, remember, for, for a couple of years. And, you know, Obama came out with his birth certificate and it was uh, pretty conclusively shut down. And Donald Trump has been actually very rarely, it seems to me, asked about it. You'd think that people would hit him harder about this. But when people do ask him about the birther thing, all he says is, I don't talk about that anymore. Next question. So, you know, one of the good things about red is it's simple. One of the bad things about red is it's simple. But there we have it. Okay, the next thing I wanted to point out um, from my surveying of the world this week is something that I heard on Fareed Zakaria's program this Sunday, this last Sunday, where he was talking about a Muslim intellectual who came here in the late 40s after World War II as a student at the Colorado State Teachers College in Greeley, Colorado, not far from here in Boulder. And he sort of turns out to be the Alex de Tocqueville of the Arab world. His name is Saeed Qutub, and he wrote about America. Uh, for the Arabs, and he was horrified at what he saw as a decadent, hedonistic society. He saw America as being red, while he and his fellow Islamicists were working on developing a traditional or blue-amber stage of development, where they civilized red. And, um, you know, it's a classic pre-trans fallacy, but uh, just to put us in the mood, let me ask you, Brett, to play the song that sort of kicks this whole thing off, and I think most of you will recognize this. I really can't but stay. But baby, it's cold outside. I've got to go but away. But baby, it's cold outside. This evening has been, been hoping that you'd so drop in. very nice. I'll hold your hands, they're just like My ice. mother will start to Beautiful, what's your And hurry? father will be pacing the floor. Listen to the fireplace So roll. really I'd better scurry. Beautiful, please don't well, hurry. maybe just a half a drink Put more. Put some records on while I The pour. neighbors might think. Maybe it's bad. Yeah. So he went, 
when he was here as a college student, 1949, to a church social dance in Greeley, Colorado. And, um, you know, Greeley is not the bastion of liberalism by any stretch of the imagination, particularly back then. And I think most of us Americans have been to some version of the church dance. It's anything but licentious. But here's what he wrote. He said, quote, The dance floor was lit with red and yellow blue lights and with a few white lamps. The young people danced to the tune of the gramophone, and the dance floor was replete with tapping feet, enticing legs, arms wrapped around waists, lips pressed to lips, and chests pressed to chests. The atmosphere was full of desire. The American girl is well acquainted with her body's seductive capacity. She knows it lies in the face and in expressive eyes and thirsty lips. She knows seductiveness lies in her round breasts, her full buttocks, and in the shapely thighs and sleek legs. And she shows all of this and does not hide it. Now, Saeed Khatoub became very famous in the Arab world for his 20-plus books, uh, many of which focused on the great Satan, America, as being a regressive culture, a culture that they were trying to work their way out of. And of course, you know, we can look at his writing and, you know, how the women with their breasts and buttocks and thighs and legs and lips and and laugh at it in a way because we're all so therapized here. You know, we're uh, advanced modern, postmodern people. You know, we've all been to therapy and we realize that this is just a basic shadow pro projection, just basic shadow work. And that's, you know, I think really interesting because that's what's happening at his stage of development. Uh, this is the consciousness of a man who is working his way out of hedonism to goodness. That is the project of his life, to gain some mastery over his base impulses. For those of us at modern and postmodern, that war is fought and won, and we can actually move forward into a world where there is more sexual expression allowed but it is in a safe container. For a pre-modern person, that's not a safe container. In fact, it's so interesting to read how he wrote about this song because he actually cited this song, Baby, It's Cold Outside. And as he wrote, the boy took the girl to his home and kept her from leaving. She entreated him to let her return home for it was getting late and her mother and father were waiting. But every time she tried to leave, he would make an excuse and reply to her with this line, but baby, it's cold outside. So basically, this song for him is a song about men dominating women. And it's funny to read the comments section. I was looking uh, at some of the YouTube versions of this song. <laughs> that in the comments section that it's it's still being discussed today is this is this rape or seduction that's going on here with this guy because it does violate some of our more exquisitely uh, politically correct green impulses to this day of where men shouldn't really manipulate women but um, for him that was not just manipulation this was domination and again the project of his life was to civilize his red impulses and move into amber traditionalism. This is also evident in something he wrote about the men of the time, where he talked about their wide strapping chests and their ox muscles. And he said, quote, their primitiveness can be seen in the spectacle of fans as they follow a game of football or watch boxing matches, or bloody, monstrous wrestling matches. This spectacle leaves no room for doubt 
as to the primitiveness of the feelings of those who are enamored with muscular strength and desire it. And he says, only Islamic society, and it is unique in this respect. In Islamic society, all authority belongs to God alone. And man, cutting off his chains of servitude, is freed from the domination of other human beings, and thus is able to attain that real and complete freedom, which is the focus of human civilization. And, you know, can you imagine if we go back to early traditionalism, where we are realizing that power lies in a transcendent God and not in whoever has the most brute strength. And what a relief it would be to be freed of the domination of other people. And so, you know, what uh, Saeed Qutb is doing is he is mistaking post-conventional morality, where we are civilized, so now we can re-engage sex more freely, the sexual revolution that really began after World War II, and he's, he identifies it properly. But that's progress past traditionalism. What he, as a budding traditionalist, sees, he sees it as a regression back to the, you know, rape culture of red, which was, of course, most of human history. So it's so interesting to see how that works. Jeff, while I was looking for which version to play, um, there's so many versions in our culture, right. and all of them kind of say something about us at the time they were done. And there's one from a few years ago where um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Lady Gaga performed it at an award ceremony. Oh, really? And they reversed the roles. So Joseph was trying to get away from her, <laughs> and she was trying to convince him to stay. You know, interesting. Yeah, and yeah. then there's the Key and Peele version, right. where they just kind of they do like a kind of mock version of that song, and she ends up like beating him up, and then he begs to be let go. Right, exactly. You showed me that. Yeah, I mean, the very end of that uh, performance, she puts on a rubber rubber glove and manually violates it. <laughs> I mean, it's shocking. <laughs> It makes me sympathetic to Saeed Katoub. <laughs> but we'll have to we'll link to those in the in the actual post yeah. because they're really fun. I mean, what a, I mean, this song is really such a part of Americana. Yeah. And it's so interesting to see it be, you know, so misinterpreted. Well, I think we move on to uh, Mr. Theo. So while we're doing that, Brett, why don't you play our excerpt from the topic at hand? And this is Senator Bernie Sanders, as of yesterday, uh, as he is riding the wave that he has created and has all of our attention. Now, in this campaign, as Chink was mentioning, we have had to take on the entire establishment. That's okay. That's okay. We have taken on the financial establishment. And when we get attacked by CEOs from General Electric or Verizon, you know what? I'm fine with that. When we get attacked by people from Wall Street, I feel great. And we have had to take on the political establishment. In every state, in every state that we have run in, we have had to take on Democratic governors and senators and members of Congress and mayors, literally almost the entire Democratic establishment. And in state after state, the people have stood up and helped defeat the establishment. But it is not just a corrupt campaign finance system that we are going to fight. It is a rigged economy. This is what a rigged economy is about. A rigged economy is when today the top one-tenth of one percent, 
now owns almost as much wealth as the bottom 90%. Right on. Right on. Yay. <laughs> Welcome, Theo. It's good to be on here. Yes, indeed. Let me just tell the folks a little bit about you. Theo Horesh is, I think, one of the leading integrally informed thought leaders in our culture right now. Uh, written two books on thinking globally. One is Convergence, the Globalization of Mind. And you have a new book coming out called Inner Climate, Global Warming from the Inside Out, right? Yep. Yeah. You write for Elephant Journal. Yep. And you have a huge Facebook presence. This is what I want to talk to you about tonight. <laughs> you know, I, I know you focus a lot on your thoughts about the Middle East and your travels there, but currently you're focused on Bernie. And yep. you're like leading what I think is a significant a charge to get this guy as far as we possibly can, maybe <laughs> to the White House, who knows. So, you know, so, so we can hear, even in that excerpt from Bernie, that he's really hitting two themes right now. One is the policy theme, and that is how quickly can we get to Denmark? You know, how quickly can we really install a green economy. And we know from an integral perspective that that's probably what's next. Yep. And then also is how can we make this process? So policy one and second is process. How can we make this process more democratic and less of an oligarchy? Yes. And so those two waves is what he's riding. And so let's look at the first, the policy thing. Mm -hmm. And you argue, we had a little conversation earlier you argue that it's not as radical as it seems. Yep. And that, you know, in some ways, Bernie's talking about developing institutions that are well-established and, and time-proven. Yep. His financial transactions tax has been uh, implemented in 40 countries. His uh, parental leave policies are the norm throughout Europe. Single-payer health care, it's only been done in a few different countries, uh, but the universal health insurance that's uh, not-for-profit is completely the norm throughout the developed world. So this is one variation that's actually the least radical in some ways um, of how to universalize health insurance. And when you look back to uh, uh, free college tuition, college tuition was all but free in a lot of ways in the 60s. Yeah. Um, the kinds of equality that he's looking at in our society if he got his fantasy, we'd almost be put back to the 50s um, and the early 60s. In terms of tax rates? Yeah, 90% taxes on the wealthiest tax right. bracket from World War II up into the early 70s and only slowly diminishing into the 80s. This is all quite conservative in a lot of ways in the sense that this is tried and true. There's no experimentation. Obamacare was a complete experiment in the world. Mm -hmm. um, gay marriage is largely an experiment. There's precedent. Mm -hmm. um, in some societies, in, um, in the Ming Dynasty in China, there was something like that. You, but it's largely experimental. Much of what liberalism has become in the United States is experimental, largely because we have such a strange system, and we don't want to um, mimic the best of what's in Europe. But these are the most successful states ever in the history of the world, yeah. by many measures. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that what we can say is that a lot of these countries, and we're basically talking about Northern Europe, you know, the Scandinavia, Germany, Denmark, they're green. I mean, their economies are green. They, they got there before we did. Our, our economy is still in the orange stage. And as you, I think, correctly point out, you know, we had a blue economy or a, a traditionalist economy back after World War II through the 80s. And then Reagan came on and that changed. You know, we went down to, what, 36% tax rates and so forth. And that began this sort of go-go achievement um, uh, growth. Yeah. Everything's focused around growth and money. Yeah. And that is sort of run its course. In fact, one could say that that ran its course at the end of the Bush administration yeah. in 2008 with this you know, great recession. And now it's time to move into you know, a more fully green economy, which is actually better than what we had in the 50s and post-World War II, uh, post -World War, World II, because it's more... It includes everybody. The technologies are more flexible. The yeah. social attitudes are more flexible. Um, we've got we've got greater capacities all around. We've got um, the, there's been a burgeoning of occupations, uh, 
and um, a shift towards a creative economy. Daniel Bell, the um, sociologist who wrote Coming a Post-Industrial Society in 1973. Uh, so you have um, several stages of, of, of economies. You have a primary economy, which is agricultural. You have a secondary economy, which is industrial, a tertiary economy, which is, um, uh, I think he focused on... Informational. Information, that was it. Yeah. Fourth, the fourth one was financial and health services. And uh, fifth, I think he got into a, a quinary economy. I can't even remember if he did or he didn't. Mm -hmm. But it started getting into creative work. Yeah. And that's where you see this with Richard Florida's um, uh, rise of the creative economy. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so we've got a lot of exciting things happening. And our political system has not caught up. And in many ways, it's regressing. And we, we, we've, got, we've got more liberal values in the social sphere. Um, but we've got this sort of corruption. And when you say that this... The Reagan era has has run its course. In many ways, it's run its course into the corruption that it could only result in. Mm -hmm. um, the, the sort of uh, fin de siècle, um, the, the, the end of an era. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that should have happened in 2007, 2008. And, and one wonders what might have happened if we didn't have the Citizens United decision that allowed for such a flood of money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yet we've seen that despite the flood of money, there still is something else arising. And I always yeah. think of, of sort of the poster boy for the end of big money in a way, just de facto, is Jeb Bush, mm. you know, who had, <laughs> you know, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of dollars and ended up with virtually nothing. Mm. And, uh, and, and then and, and we have Bernie, who has done no fundraising, uh, has no super PACs, and has raised all of his money. I think what the average is seventeen dollars a donation. Twenty-seven. Is that a twenty-seven dollars <laughs> a donation? Money. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, and, it, and that gets to the sort of second wave that he's riding, is this anti-corruption thing. Yeah. This end of big money, and I think people are getting it that the system. You can see it on the Republican side too. You know, all of the the representatives of the system, and there were 16 of them, governors, senators, you know, the whole, you know, regular suspects. And the guy who wins is the guy who is in a way not even a Republican, yeah. you know, yeah. and who is at least so far, and that's changing, but self-funding. Yeah. And just basically, a, a, you know, a bull in a china shop, just yeah. busting things up. Yeah. And that's also happening a bit with Bernie. Yeah. I mean, Bernie's not even a Democrat, technically. Yeah. And he's he's what the Democratic Party, in some ways, has set the system up to guard against. Yeah. The guy who comes in and hijacks the party and doesn't really respect the apparatus. It's strange that that's true, and he's he's the core of what the Democratic Party is supposed to represent going back to FDR and the New Deal and to Lyndon Johnson, who probably passed more legislation as a Democrat um, in the 60s, post-60s era um, with the New Society programs. Um, uh, so it, it's funny. He's coming in challenging the party with many of its core values. But the thing that's interesting to me that I wouldn't have said before coming onto your show, so you've lit up something, some insight in me. Um, I won't say that... Bernie's an integral thinker. I, I don't actually think he is. Right. Um, but it's interesting how many levels of development he resonates on. He mm -hmm. has the red fire in him, more so than Trump, much more so than Trump. Uh, if they were young... It's at least more coherent. It's certainly more coherent, it's but not, it's fierier. Yeah. I, I, if, if they were younger men, I would think Bernie would kick his ass. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> um, and I think his supporters would. If we were in a war together, we yeah. would duke let's, it out. Let's think of a tug of war. <laughs> um, but on, on, on the blue level, um, the membership-oriented, conformist society, the, the mass society, um, Bernie resonates on that level because he's talking about safety and security and how these programs would bring that about. I actually think his programs would bring about much more from the 50s than anybody else. Um, he, he resonates with Orange in the sense that he's preserving the values of our democratic system, which is the purest expression to me of, of, uh, of Orange values. It's a rational system. He's the only candidate 
Um, almost everybody has missed this. He's the only candidate who uses statistics regularly in his communication. He regularly talks in statistics, believing that everybody understands statistics, mm -hmm. which is utterly inaccurate. And as you've mentioned, he's very green. This is all very interesting. And there's a sense, I think, among his, among his followers, if you can call them, us, that, supporters, that, uh, that he can set the whole thing aright. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is in contrast to his opponent currently, Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And, you know, I think Hillary's a nice lady, isn't she? I mean, like, <laughs> what, where, what do I, I mean, let me just put this out there. I'm 62. I've been, you know, in the system for a long time. And this is where I get suspicious of myself, you know, because I think, you know, Bernie's too far out and, you know, his time will come and, you know, he's, he's, he's lit a fire and somebody else will carry the torch and it's not time yet. Yeah. And I think, wait a second, if I was 30, I wouldn't feel that way. <laughs> it's like, this is a really unique time in American politics. I've never seen an elective uh, election cycle like this, nor yeah. has anybody. Yeah. You know, between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, I mean, it's like somebody has come in and taken the deck of cards and thrown it all up in the air. Yeah. And it's like the old guard, the, 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 the guardians of the system as it is, just, and Hillary is, of course, is a part of that. Yeah. And now, do you think she's particularly egregious? I think part she's, of that. I think she's Nixonian in her egregiousness. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, I mean, I just, I just look, just looking at the campaign. I, and I usually, when I want to um, enumerate her lies, I, I try to start with the most recent ones I've discovered going backwards. Mm -hmm. um, the most recent one. Um, she creates the Hillary Victory Fund. This is supposed to fund Democratic candidates at, at all levels, um, but mostly um, uh, in national elections. Um, it raises $60 million. Uh, it takes in the highest donations at uh, 50000 vastly more than uh, you're able to raise for, for yourself now, um, for oneself. And um, it comes out in the middle of her campaign that they've actually spent 45% of that money for themselves, something, something like that. Um, but that was only part of it. It's now come out that they've only spent 1% of it uh, for other Democratic candidates. She basically lied to the Democratic Party and stole their money and broke our unbelievably lax campaign finance um, campaign finance laws. Mm -hmm. um, so she's pushing us back in, in that way um, very far. You look at the nature of her campaign. Her whole campaign is, um, has um, been crafted around gun control, which is nice. I support gun control and immigration reform. I support immigration reform. Um, and she's used these two issues um, to portray her primary opponent as... Um, Bernie. Bernie, as an old, racist, gun-toting, rural, out-of-touch guy from, yeah. you know, from this rural state. Um, she's twisted around his positions on gun control. As, as I told you before, if, if um, the main thing she's got against Bernie on gun control is that uh, um, he opposes suing the manufacturers of guns and mass shootings. And right. As I've said before, this is like uh, um, suing the kitchen sink manufacturers for uh, Hillary throwing the kitchen sink at Bernie. It's, it's an ethical position. Uh, he took another ethical stand, which was... Um, opposing, along with a lot of right-wing Republicans and centrist Democrats, um, a certain oversight of, um, from Homeland Security of the Minutemen Militia, which is a nasty uh, militia group that guards, quote-unquote, guards our borders from yeah. Mexican immigrants. Right. Freelancers. Um, he's obviously against this. He's obviously against this because he's regularly speaking out about the abuses that immigrants suffer in the United States. He's um, much more so than Hillary, is, in my opinion. Um, but these light up. African-Americans in inner cities, this lights up uh, Mexican-Americans. These two issues right. continually lights them up, and he doesn't do well with minorities. Um, they become her backstop. So her whole campaign, it's not even a real platform. These are, these are relatively tangential issues to what we really need to do to preserve, preserve our country. It's, it's not looking at the, the, the massive social problem of our times, which is inequality. It's not looking at the massive problem of our political system, which is money and politics. Yeah. It's not looking at our geopolitical issues, which she should know inside out, which is somehow having to do this um, delicate retrenchment of American power and shifting from the Middle East to 
Southeast Asia and dealing with a, with a rising Russia and dealing with more, um, a more internationalist system. It's not doing that. It's not looking at the economy. She, she barely touches the economy. This to me is corrupt. It's, it's fundamentally corrupt. She's, she's playing politics with the most important issues with the future of our country. Yeah. So what chance do you think there is of Bernie actually pulling this thing out? It's extremely, it's extremely low at this okay. stage. Yeah. I would, and, and you have a certain critique of Bernie too, right? Yeah. I've got a critique of everything. Yeah, right. <laughs> Join the club, right? Um, I, I think it's extremely low at this, at this point. I would have said differently just before going into the Northeast. He lost momentum there. It was a rising momentum. His polling numbers were continuing to get better. Um, he was just starting to beat her in the polls among Democrats. He's been destroying her in head-to-head polls With against Trump. Republican rivals, and particularly Trump, usually yeah. winning um, by more than 10 points more than her. And he's actually pulled away a little. Um, he's winning by larger margins, 10 points. I haven't been watching as closely in the last week. or So it looked like it was possible then. When he got hit hard in the Northeast, it was still possible that he could have um, maintained momentum, but people just seem to to let it go. His, he's um, and he's going to have to win by something like a sixty five percent margin in the rest of the remaining states, right. which favor him a little more than others. But then he would have to win over the super delegates, and I think his only shot is that something new is going to come out with the uh, with the emails, which I do think is a legitimate scandal. Almost everyone on the left says it's not. I actually think hiding thirty thousand emails. Um, where you've been probably doing work using your home computer um, is seriously corrupt. It's a, um, Bob Woodward, who broke the, the Watergate scandal, um, said it, it's, it's like Watergate, but worse. Right. Um, All right. So seriously corrupt versus Donald Trump. <laughs> so I call it a neoliberal, <laughs> neoliberal uh, oligarchy versus postmodern fascism. Yeah. I'll, I'll choose neoliberal oligarchy. <laughs> but here's, here's, so, so I think, you know, the Bernie supporters shouldn't do the Bernie or bust thing that you've got it. You're going to have, if, if it's Hillary, we're going to have to, we're going to have to vote for, unless you're a really diehard Green Party person and you're really serious about right. it. I was a Green Party organizer in the early nineties. I had a right to vote for Ralph Nader. Um, uh, even though I regret it, um, especially because I realized how cool Al Gore was, um, but I had a right to vote for him. I was, I was strongly behind it. It really held my values. I believed in the candidate. I don't think most of these people are talking about voting for Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate, really believe in her. I don't think they know much about the party. But there's other ways of punishing the Democratic Party. One, you can drop out of the Democratic Party. Two, you can contribute to um, candidates who are running against some of the centrist Democrats and the people who've manipulated the process. Yeah. Um, and uh, the Bernie campaign is now pushing someone, a challenger for... Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, the head of the party, um, that's done so much to shut him out. Um, and I think that's quite appropriate. Um, th- there's other ways we can challenge the right. party. Yeah, well, I, I think what we're seeing is that things change. And the role of the party, it, it's sort of obsolete in a way. I mean, yeah. they were uh, sort of who consolidated the thinking. And they had the think tanks. And they have the donors. And they have... Um, you know, all of this, the, the infrastructure of getting elected, and that's no longer as necessary and valuable as it used to be because we have other means of getting organized. We're all thinking for ourselves on social media, yeah. you fucking asshole, exclamation, exclamation, exclamation. I know, exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, the comment sections, like, I always think of it, the, the comment section of Facebook and some of these websites is like, a, a, a transcript of my voice dialogue therapy sessions in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just all these voices. But so this is, I, I think we're seeing the sort of uh, the beginning of the end of the party system on both sides of the street. I mean, yeah. God knows what's going to come of the Republicans after this. And the Democrats too. So, you know, we just noticed that. I mean, things change. Why shouldn't they? And we're moving into a system where intelligence and money are more distributed. Yeah. They're not so centralized. And I think this is some of what we're seeing. I, I think it's exciting. It reminds me of 1948 when you had uh, the Democratic Party split in three. Um, people were dissatisfied with Truman, who hadn't been elected at that point in time. And you had the Dixiecrat party under Strom Thurmond, which was totally racist. Um, and you had, I'm not even sure what they were called, under Henry Wallace, the former vice president, 
who was a socialist bordering on communist. He was far to the left of Bernie. Yeah. Uh, and you had the party split. And still uh, Truman won. Um, and that was a major shift. But, but the party system reestablished itself. But I want to go back to something you said. You said okay. I, I had my own criticism of, of uh, Bernie. Oh, Bernie, and, yeah. Um, I think it's important to get into that. Um, from an integral perspective and from the perspective of my book, Convergence of Globalization of Mind, the greatest challenge before us is to actually learn. And thinking globally does not mean developing to a certain stage, whatever we want, integral consciousness. <coughs> thinking globally actually means understanding global issues, which takes a lot of time. It's at least an order of magnitude more complex than understanding our national political. I, I even venture to say orders of magnitude, 10 to 100 times more complex. There's vastly more issues to get a handle on. There's vastly more different cultures to get a handle on how they're grappling with those issues. Something like climate change is more complex scientific we're confronting. Yeah. It's just affecting us nationally. Um, it's going to require a vastly more diverse group of players to come together on. The, all the deals are more complex. Um, and the effects of it are going to touch on virtually every human system. And when you expand to the global level, you start looking at future generations into the far foreseeable, not just seven generations. Um, and you start looking at um, the value of other species, the value of ecosystems, and the value of emergent systems like oceanic currents and atmospheric currents. This is so incredibly complex. And that complexity requires nuance in thinking, um, and it requires a flexibility in thinking that I just think that Bernie is like. Um, I think in many ways, um, we're looking at an Obama presidency that has failed to galvanize, um, galvanize people of nuanced thinking, mm -hmm. nuanced, complex thinking that was subtle, that should bring everybody together. Republicans became recalcitrant um, in the face of it, um, and his supporters didn't get it. But um, he did. I think he got it. Yeah. I think, I think he's an incredibly nuanced, complex thinker with a well-developed political philosophy that's um, about building consensus around making big changes happen. Yeah. Sounds quite progressive, and it also is quite centrist. Yeah. Um, it, it's uh, very unusual, and he was incredibly global in his thinking. I've got great criticisms of what he's done geopolitically, but that's beside the point. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I mean, who gets it all right? Absolutely. You and, know. And his, his values are going to differ. I mean, but I don't see Bernie engaging on that level. And I see a lot of people concerned about that. And some of the Hillary supporters are concerned about yeah. that. Um, it will make I'm it concerned about that. Yeah. You know, but I, you know, I, so here's me. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, be, uh, maybe because I'm a little more establishment oriented because I'm old. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, okay, so whatever. It, it, Hillary's going to win. But she has had a reality check, a, an existential nose rub with the progressive agenda uh, via Bernie in a way that nobody expected. And I'm not so sure that in order to really do something dramatic, which she needs because she doesn't have a lot of the juice that Bernie does, actually. It's strange to, to imagine, but it's true, that she may um, offer him the vice presidency. I was thinking that after Super Tuesday. After Super Tuesday, if I were her and I believed in what I was doing, I would say, wow, it doesn't look like Bernie's going to win, but hey, I stayed in the race for a long time. He can stay in the race for a long time. And it's incredible how he's galvanized the party, how he's brought all these new young people into the party. Right. Uh, this is what we need. We, and I would have I hinted at including him as vice president. Um, I would have praised many of the things he did. I would have looked at two or three specific things that he supports that I could get behind. I'd take it on. I'd say I'm listening to what the people want. Um, that's why I'm changing my perspective. I have reasons that I've expressed for holding my views as I do. I wouldn't have morphed in this weird way and then fought him. And, and, and I, would have, I would have whipped the crap out of uh, the state parties. I think she's actually supported them and given a nod to them yeah. that have done so many weird things. Nevada was yeah. stolen delegates as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, anyone who watched it. Colorado, we had um, the state party miscounted. Uh, Bernie should have gotten more delegates. They told the Hillary campaign. They didn't tell the Bernie campaign. They sat on it for weeks. Um, yep. They probably realized that they had to come out with it publicly. That's the only reason I can imagine that they would have sat on it for weeks. You had voter irregularities that could possibly come out as um, vote theft in both Arizona and New York State. You actually had the District of Columbia um, forget to put Bernie on the ballot. 
Yeah. And when that came out, they, they made a correction. She yeah. he actually criticized it. Yeah. These, this is just too many well, things Well, I think this wrong. is something that we're seeing, again, on both sides of the street with the Republican primaries and the Democratic primaries. They're too complicated. They're too prone to spin. Yeah. And I think that moving forward, both of these parties, if they're going to be relevant, are going to have to clean up their act and become yeah. more democratic Probably and more so. responsive to the yeah. you know public. And that's, of course, always a polarity that governance is trying to navigate is, yep. you know, elites versus uh, populism. Yep. And both are important in a way. Yep. But we're to the point where the elite system feels, it feels wrong. It feels corrupt. It's, uh, it feels like it's protecting itself. It feels like, you know, I was just looking at the net worth of some of these political pundits, you mm. know. So we have Ann Coulter's worth 9 million bucks. Mm. Uh, Sean Hannity, 55 million. <laughs> Even Michael Moore's worth 50 million bucks. You know, Rush Limbaugh, 350 million oh. bucks. Uh, the average senator is uh, worth $1.7 million. Yeah. It's if, enough already. If Michael Bloomberg had come into, had, had run for president, um, we would have had, assuming Hillary gets it, I'm, I'm still not so sure. I, th I think there's, uh -huh. there's a chance um, that this will change. Um, we would have had a 54 billionaire, $54 billion dollars. 4.5 billion of Trump. He's probably lying about it. It's probably a lot right. less. Right. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's, there's numerous indicators to suggest yeah. it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Hillary Clinton with 90 million. This mm -hmm. is absurd. Yeah. But, but what's least absurd about it is the fact that the money that's truly influencing these people is not their own. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's special interest money. Yeah. And, um, and, and this moves us towards Jimmy Carter has said it. Our former president has said we're actually now an oligarchy. Mm -hmm. it's, it's quite scary to, yeah. to contemplate, you know, someone from that position saying that. And and this has been a change in the last in the last five years, in the last decade. Um, something profound has shifted in our system that yeah. we have to clean up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Bernie, I think, is a great standard bearer for that. And uh, you know, I, I think he's made no no, no matter what happens. He has awakened a, a worldview and awakened millions of people to the possibility that we actually can make changes. I mean, changes happen oftentimes very radically. Yeah. And thoughts are things. You know, the more people who think a certain way, the more sort of there's a magnetic pull towards that kind of thinking. Yeah. And uh, so I, I credit him with really moving the ball here. And uh, I'm excited to see what will happen. I'm reminded of uh, the prophets of the millennial generation. Uh, I, and I can't remember both their names. One of them was Strauss. Uh, these uh, sociologists who came up with the theory of generational cycles. And each generation has its own mission. It has its own sort of archetypal style. Um, these rotate every 80 years or so. Um, the longest age of, the li of a living person. Um, hmm of a typical living person in that gener in that generation, um, you'll have a turnover. And so uh, you have uh, prophetic generations, baby boomers. You have a lost generation, the, the literal lost generation. The 20s was one, but Gen X was one. Hmm. And then you have this big achiever generation, the World War II generation. It achieves great things. Hmm. And uh, the millennials were supposed to achieve great things. They've, they've, they're a huge generation. And, and some people would say, oh, they're doing this with social media. Um, it looked like the Arab Spring. If the Arab Spring had succeeded, we would have said, yes, this is the millennial generation has gone global and they're democratizing. But democracy is actually, um, is actually being harmed in this generation, um, globally and in the United States. And I thought for a while, the Obama campaign was this big generational mission. And then uh, that kind of collapsed. And it looks like the Bernie campaign is something, it's a generation that's too big, that's too original in its thinking, and um, too united not to do something great. Yeah. So it's possible that this, this will kick it off. It's also possible these guys were wrong. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> always possible. So for people who are interested in following you and what you're doing online, how do they connect? You follow me on Facebook or friend me on Facebook. I'm the only Theo Horesh, H-O-R-E-S-H, -E in the world, H-O-R-E-S-H. You can look up my books on Amazon, uh, Convergence, The Globalization of Mind, 
it's it's a book of big thinking. Uh, it's unique. It carries some of Wilbur's thoughts on the need to develop global consciousness into a much more concrete, philosophical, pragmatics range of asking the question of how do we actually do this? Yeah. Really, how do we do it? So look look for him on Amazon. Look for me on Facebook. I'd love to have you join the conversation. Yeah, indeed. Well, thank you so much for thank being you. with us, the Oberesh. Yeah, indeed. And uh, thank you everybody for listening. And uh, we will close up here for tonight and keep an eye on the culture and consciousness as uh, we move forward. And we will be back again next week. This is Jeff Salzman signing off. Bye.